Welcome to Medical Education Trends podcast series. Here we'll have discussions and interviews about hot topics in medical education. I'm your host, Mehrdad Heravi, an Iranian medical doctor and a health professions education enthusiast. In this episode, I'm joined by Professor Peter Hornfer. Professor Hornfer is the Director of Medical Education at Lecturio and also the Executive Dean of All-American Institute of Medical Sciences at Jamaica. Professor Hornfer, it is sincerely my honor to have you on our show. Please introduce yourself for our audience. Uh, yes, uh, so I'm Dr. Peter Hornifer. Um, I am the Executive Dean at the All-American Institute of Medical Sciences in Jamaica, and I also serve as the uh, Director of Medical Education for Lecturio, which is an, um, an ed tech company focused um, primarily on um, uh, global medical education and creating uh, platform solutions. Uh, my background uh, and, and training um, was uh, that of a heart surgeon. I went to medical school and trained in heart surgery at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland in the U.S. and had stayed in, and I'm still based in Maryland um, for the last 10 to 15 years. My focus has been on um, education and using technology for education, though I still um, provide oversight to some of the programs that I helped uh, um, initiate in, in heart surgery. Well, thank you very much, Professor. Actually, honestly, I'm super excited about having you on our show because I love your work and I'm a big fan of your work, especially in Lecturio. So uh, when I was going through your experience and your career you know, throughout these years, uh, you've actually had uh, a lot of interesting experience in promoting medical education in specifically in Pacific area. So could you please tell us a little bit about these experiences? What kind of challenges did you had and what have you learned? Um, yes, it, it was very interesting. And, and uh, you know, serendipity is, is, a, is a funny thing. I was <laughs> as a, a heart surgeon and uh, got a somewhat uh, unexpected call and offer um, a, a, about a, a new endeavor um, in the, the mid-2000s at a time where it's hard to imagine now, but at that time, the internet was still relatively young, and, and especially those of us in medicine weren't quite sure what this would amount to. Online teaching was very suspect, but the, the concept was that um, uh, with the internet, you could actually transport uh, um, teaching materials to underserved areas. And um, a, a, a philanthropist and visionary had ties to independent Samoa and, and uh, New Zealand and, and the South Pacific uh, um, and, and was aware of a very dire need to help train physicians in this underserved area. They had no medical school. Um, and when students left to go to New Zealand or Australia for training, often they decided that they preferred that way of life for one thing or another and, and didn't come back. Um, and so the idea was to help train um, and medical students in their communities to help serve their communities. The premise being that the hands-on part of medical education um, it could be done in, in every locale. There were patients, 
there were hospitals, there were clinics. So there was clinical material and experience, but they didn't have the biochemists, the pathophysiologists, those that often congregate in universities and have a primary interest in research and also do teaching um, to teach the, the very important foundational sciences on which all of uh, our expertise in medicine is built on. So the idea was to bring in the didactics uh, via online. And though it sounded like a crazy idea at the time, I, I was uh, um, I was very interested. I'd been a heart surgeon for over a couple of decades at that point. And heart surgery is a, a fairly high impact specialty in many of my Senior colleagues had, had uh, for various reasons, uh, you know, taken retirement at an earlier age than I thought that I would want to leave medicine, and and so this this intrigued me, and um, I, I seized the opportunity to become involved in this, and that um, uh, actually led to a, a you know a, a very significant. Uh, career change in terms of the direction and focus well it may be a, a, a crazy choice at that time but that seems really huge right now so as you mentioned you have been trained in johns hopkins in a developed country so what are the differences and similarities between medical education between these developing areas and developed areas Right. Very good question. And one of the things that, that really struck me, um, I had never been to Samoa um, or the South Pacific, um, getting to know the physicians there, the students. And um, it, it was a bit of a unique program because the, the, the initial focus was to provide education in this underserved area. It was also perceived that there were um, students in Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S., who for various economic reasons primarily had not been able to enter a primary, the, the, the medical school pathway. And it was decided to allow um, students from those countries also to participate in the didactic portion of this and then be um, trained in their local hospital. So there was a contrast of students from uh, the U.S., New Zealand, Australia, um, and uh, various countries in the South Pacific in addition to Samoa. And what I found from that mix is that those individuals had far more in common mm -hmm. than, they, than there were differences. Um, one of the, the big differences, and, and I'm still in touch with my colleagues and friends at Hopkins as I still reside in, in the Baltimore area, um, is that, uh, and, and I was fortunate personally in having a fairly robust academic background from, from an early age, um, but, but many students in underserved areas are not so fortunate in terms of being conditioned how to, um, how, how to have the discipline and the focus and the importance of creating a good knowledge base. As we know from learning science, the more you know, the easier it is to learn more. You know, we all build, it's called scaffolding on, you know, a solid knowledge base. And though many students from underserved areas have uh, may have uh, be very adept in practical knowledge and be very intelligent, but they don't have a large knowledge base. So I think one of the important things, there are two things. One is the discipline of 
work not in a in a manual sense. I mean, they're most of these students, are, you know, are are very dedicated, but understanding the um, the discipline required to focus in a cognitive sense, and then also the importance of delivering of of developing a solid knowledge base. Many medical schools in the U.S., and, and Hopkins is no exception, are, are highly selective. So they, they already start with a student population that has, a, you know, many of which the students have a, a, a very well-developed knowledge base and proficiency in, in acquiring new knowledge. And that is a difference. But ultimately, um, what I found is that um, all students with all backgrounds can be helped if taught appropriately to reach, you know, very capable potentials. And in many ways, some of the students from these underserved backgrounds were so devoted and focused on giving care that they they turned into superlative physicians um, and and really deserve the opportunity um, to to have a high level of education. That can be really inspirational for uh, medical students around the world. So um, moving uh, from this experience, actually you had a really interesting experience uh, where you were actually executive dean of All-American Institute, Institute of Medical Sciences in Jamaica. And uh, can you tell us about that experience? Right, so I, I, I left my endeavor in the South Pacific really energized and and I thought that that you know what we what we got to work there and we were fortunate to successfully complete the initial accreditation process and and I had graduates from the US and the South Pacific and Australia New Zealand that went on to to practice you know very um, effectively and and become um, well regarded physicians and I thought this was really a new paradigm in medical education and um, decided to really focus my efforts going forward. So um, I, I initially worked as a consultant um, to, to, uh, to spread the word, if you would, of, of new potentials. And um, uh, uh, in that journey, I was very fortunate to meet um, the folks that had started Lecturio, um, an ed tech um, startup that had very much the same vision and mission that I did, um, and, and we're looking for medical leadership. Um, so we joined forces, um, and shortly thereafter, one of their accounts was a small school, which, much like the Pacific Endeavor, had been um, granted a government charter. It was a, a small private school, but founded by, again, a visionary, also a, a surgeon who had emigrated from India, um, come to train in uh, um, Jamaica and practiced and saw a great need uh, initially for, for training ancillary um, uh, technicians uh, um, to support hospitals but ultimately saw the need to train physicians um, and was granted a, a charter to start a medical school in an underserved part of the country. Um, and this was, uh, to me, a, a very remarkable sort of one-man effort and, and reached out and um, not only needed help in how to implement 
a platform-based approach to medical education because that is really fundamental to bringing in um, resources to areas um, uh, that that need them. And I'm talking about cognitive or knowledge-based resources, teaching. Um, uh, so uh, helped them um, agree to take the position at executive dean. Um, and it's been tremendously rewarding. I have to say there was um, a, a lot of resistance because we went from a paper and pencil and and uh, you know classic methodology to digitized exams, platform-based uh, learning. And I still remember um, that when the pandemic hit, the joke was, um, uh, that, uh, well, Dr. Hornifer actually unleashed the pandemic to prove to us, uh, you, you know, why it was important to have a digital framework because we were actually, I believe, the only school in Jamaica that never lost a day because we were already, our, our meetings were already on Zoom. We had, in, we, we just migrated the in-class activities to Zoom, but the faculty were already using Zoom to to connect, I would make periodic visits, but I'm based in, in Maryland and we had the lecturial platform for delivering many of the didactics and we'd already had an online examination um, um, a platform. So it was a relatively seamless transfer. But I think this, I think a lot of folks have understood that uh, the, the pandemic has, uh, has changed um, everyone's perception of the adequacy and and online learning is not equivalent is not equal to face-to-face -face teaching but can be equivalent if appropriately administered and in context of the all-important face-to-face training one gets when one sees a patient or observes a senior physician interact so uh, fundamental to my approach is is marrying the didactic the learning capabilities of of uh, technologically administered um, education modalities with the on-site experiences that i don't foresee in, in in my lifetime you know being replaced i think we the essence of being a physician is dealing with people and, and learning and, and you need the physical contact for that. Um, but I, I think you can benefit tremendously from using um, technology to augment the educational process from a didactic standpoint. Well, that and, was and I'm still the executive dean there and it's still very much a work in progress. Um, we've made great strides, um, but but we're learning all the time and and I, I very much enjoy um, you know sharing the experiences that I get with that ongoing association. Well these really are inspirational experiences. And, um, you know, uh, so uh, as I understood, uh, this was uh, the beginning of your uh, cooperation with uh, Lecturio, is that correct? Correct. I had just joined, actually, I, I, I had agreed to take the position of Director of Medical Education at Lecturio just a few months before I met the founder um, uh, of the AIMS program. But the, the two... Uh, the, the the two positions are are very synergistic. They are actually quite separate, and I'm very careful to uh, you know conduct 
um, everything I do at Ames, and we have other platforms and other modalities that we use there. Um, but there's really nothing in my mind that comes close to what we can offer through for through the lecturial platform as well. So uh, we we certainly use that, and it helps me develop the lecturial platform along with um, through lecturio. I get to connect with with uh, medical education experts throughout the world and through um, you know many other schools. Like Turio has um, is involved with I think it's close to 180 institutions now um, and close to a million subscribers um, in in you know over 100 countries. So. Um, it, it's really enlightening, um, and it keeps reminding me that there are far more similarities everywhere than differences. Well, that's completely true, and uh, I think this part of our, our conversation uh, will be really interesting for the fans of Lecturio, and I want to shift gear to, to this topic, and you're also, as you've mentioned, the Director of Medical Education in Lecturio, and that is one of the most prestigious and one of the most well-known, um, as you have mentioned, ed tech companies in the world. Um, what are? Uh, let's talk about the the educational startups or educational companies like Lecturio. Uh, how can uh, someone in other uh, countries all around the world establish some sort of um, ed tech companies, and what are the do's and don'ts of establishing that? Well, um, a very very good question, and and frankly. Um, it's it's a massive undertaking, um, and and it's actually a, a particularly interesting question because after my experiences um, in the South Pacific, I, I actually uh, contemplated starting such a company, um, and and uh, uh, several have been started. Um, there are other ed tech uh, medical platforms out there um, and uh, several started by physicians. Um, I, I also wondered whether universities would help partner in this. And I personally came to the conclusion that um, it really takes, much like heart surgery, when, when I do heart surgery, it takes a team. And, and I may lead the operation, but I have an anesthesiologist and a perfusionist that have been trained is specifically in those areas. And what was so helpful at Lecturio is the, um, the, the leadership um, from a management perspective had a rich background in navigating um, investments and, and raising of capital and, and marketing, uh, many skills that, that you know, physicians aren't, uh, don't have experience in. The, the the studio, the graphics, they had all the pieces together. And um, uh, I, I think you really do need a team. And so I personally actually found it far more effective to join forces with such a team. I think if one were to endeavor to start this from scratch, um, don't think you can do it all. You know, one of the... the, the the important things is to understand one's own limitations, bring 
what you're able to bring to the table and then surround yourself with gifted, capable people um, who can supply, you know, the, the other pieces to the puzzle. The, the other very important thing, um, not so much in terms of starting, but um, I'd like to maybe flip the question a little bit. Um, if you're in an underserved area and you want to move towards using these new approaches to education, and, and I don't know, but that, that's sort of the, the first cousin of your question. So if, if you don't mind, if it's okay, I'll move it in that direction because it's very important. And these tools are very powerful, but what you also need to know is that they entail a change in attitude and culture about how we're all learning and, and teaching or being taught. Um, and that this can be a stepwise um, progression. So for example, in Jamaica, and, and also I adopted this philosophy in the South Pacific, it doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen overnight. You can, you can start this incrementally, um, you know, People are very uncomfortable with wholesale sudden shifts as, as witnessed in the pandemic. Everybody was forced to do something um, and, and often was not done well. If, you, if you've attended some of my webinars, we, we talked about emergency remote teaching. It's just where you took your classroom in the same way and plopped it online. And, and it was not always a satisfactory experience. And, and I think we're still working through what are the best ways to, to work online. And then we realized, but wow, we have these online polls, we have breakout rooms, we have, you know, there are ways to actually Im improve and, and the chat box, you know, you didn't have the chat box before and now you can get students responding by chat and, and if they're nervous and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their classmates, they can send a chat um, and, and gain comfort that way. So, uh, you know, we, we need to go through a transformative process and that's one of the reasons I enjoy sharing my thoughts in podcasts like this. And I congratulate you on taking the initiative and, and, and helping people understand what's out there. Um, and that's why I, I host this webinar series on, on Lecturio, which is purely informational and, and a thought gathering. We, we try and encourage discussions and hear what, what, people are doing. So I think, um, you know, for the entrepreneurs, it, it, it's, it's, uh, as you know, 80, 90% of these efforts um, don't succeed. Um, doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but, but if you can put together a team, do it. And then importantly, on the flip side, if you're introducing technologies such as the electoral platform, um, start with a few uh, champions or advocates and, and you don't need a wholesale adoption. We have new schools that have started with, let's say, the lecturial approach from the get-go that have been very successful. But most you know, schools are established and, and integrated, understand the local culture, and, and then integrate it over time. 
So hopefully that answers both your questions. That completely answered, yeah. So um, I want to shift gears to your uh, great and excellent articles and webinars and lecture. I'm again a big fan of them. Um, so you use the term of evidence-based uh, learning or teaching and learning. So, and you've discussed using teaching and learning strategies, which are evidence-based. And uh, you've mentioned that medical students uh, are better to know these kind of uh, strategies. Uh, what does it mean, uh, as you've mentioned, evidence-based teaching and learning? Right. Excellent question. And, and so I, I draw heavily from my experience as a heart surgeon. Um, as you know, we are referred patients from our medical uh, counterparts, our cardiologists. And, and for most of my career, the, the cardiologists have always you know, demanded of, of their surgeons, well, you know, can you prove that if you're going to um, open someone's sternum and put them on bypass and, and put them through this, this big risky um, operation, what was formerly risky and the risk has, has gone down considerably, um, you know, is it effective? And, and there were many randomized uh, controlled trials that investigated coronary artery bypass and, and really when to do heart valve surgery and 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 a whole whole list. Um, so we've always been very aware, and and further refinements came. You know how we conduct ourselves, how long we keep our patients intubated or extubated. I, I still go back to the years of my early internship, and you know we start in general surgery before cardiac surgery, and I was uh, told, you know, without any doubt that once you had an inguinal hernia repaired, you had to be at strict bed rest for a week when I started, and and this would be malpractice in this day and age, and and it was just what was always handed down, and people, you know, dealt with the complications of, of pneumonias from atelectasis and DVTs, and it was found that early mobilization, and likewise in heart surgery, I would have had my wrist slapped to even think of extubating an open heart patient within 24 hours of surgery when I started. But when we looked at it critically, it was not only safer, but better. And the same things have actually transpired in the world of education. There have been, in the last couple decades, excellent studies, mostly, admittedly, in a slightly younger group, but not a lot. We're not talking about preschool or early kids who I think are, you know, in a different sort of cognitive development stage. But from, from late high school, what we call college in the U.S., um, I think there are far more similarities. And so I think you can take studies from cognitive science and now neuroscience. There's, there is a wealth of writing and research understanding how we process information, how we store information, how retrieval-based strategies lead to long-term retention. And, and we've all seen students go through, at least in the U.S. system, you know, they go from anatomy to their pathology, you know, through various subjects, and then they have to take board exams. And oh my goodness, now I've got to take two months off to review stuff because they haven't retained it. And, and we know now how fleeting working memory can be. What, what, and, and, and this concept that I talked about that called metacognition, you know, do you really know what you think you know? And, and, you know, 
I believe that I'm no different from most people. I, 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 you know, love to convince myself I know more than I do. Um, and, and these experiences have, have actually uh, made me, in many ways, a better student um, because I'm still learning and most physicians do learn throughout their whole career. And I've gotten much better at, at understanding how to learn effectively. But when you look at what's happening in the classroom, very little of what's known from the studies in cognitive science is actually being applied. You know, most of the traditional teaching settings are still a one-hour lecture and, um, you know, faculty making presentations um, and, and not focusing on retrieving information and, and using resources like video resources to uh, use, there's a, a strategy of dual coding where you talk and you look at graphics um, that you've heard us discuss. You know, they're, they're very effective ways to provide information and then use valuable faculty time on retrieval-based exercises, not being what's called the sage on the stage so much, but more the, 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 the coach by the side. And you still need to um, help students understand you still need to do teaching and to do um, direct instruction. Um, and there's actually science on, if you talk about underserved areas or, or, or students that have less robust knowledge backgrounds often benefit more from what's called direct instruction. But all this can be built in, monitored, and improved by using a, a digital platform, which I really envision will be the schoolhouse of the future. You know, they'll, they'll still be buildings, but I think that schools will be tied together by a methodology and a digital platform that'll help monitor their progress and optimize using spaced retrieval um, uh, and, and concepts of uh, interleaving where you relate different subjects at different times, things that are very hard to administer in a conventional setting. And an analogy I often use is that we've used technology and research to train our athletes much more effectively now than, than several decades ago. We should be leveraging these evidence-based educational strategies to improve the, um, the pedagogy for our students and not just the weak students. This applies to everyone um, across the board. So what, what's very rewarding is, is the work we're doing in underserved areas, I think applies every bit as much to the, the um, more elite um, institutions and more highly selective that everyone can benefit. Great. So, um, so referring to your experiences in underserved area, you've, if I'm not mistaken, you've tried to uh, train physicians in these regions. So, how can it be done uh, globally? How can uh, other medical educators uh, try to promote medical education and promote learning for uh, physicians in these kinds of uh, underserved area or developing countries? Well, that's the, the other 
um, remarkable thing that I found um, going to uh, uh, the country of Samoa, which when I was there, the whole country had one road with with one traffic light. Um, uh, very few roads were were paved, um, but a wonderful people. But they actually had a fiber optic internet connection, <laughs> which which was available at the the medical school. I live in in rural Baltimore, and, and fiber optics haven't quite gotten to my home yet. Um, and and so internet connectivity is not um, perfect everywhere. I'm sure we all have times when we struggle with it. Um, uh, but it's really uh, provides great advantages that we haven't had before. And using the tool uh, by downloading, you know, there are ways to get around glitches in connectivity. Um, and, and the benefits far outweigh the inconveniences. I look forward to a time where, where you know, the connectivity is absolutely ubiquitous, but it is everywhere. So I think um, to, to rethink in, in underserved areas and frankly everywhere, I think we really need to rethink how we teach and learn um, and, and use our digital resources consider um, redefining the essence of a school um, and, and creating a base in a platform so that if there are future pandemics, if there are um, environmental disruptions, um, as we've seen recently in Europe with the flooding, um, you know, people will be displaced. This is a way to let things continue um, to, to protect against both, you know, all these sorts of national, na natural disruptions, and I think augment the teaching and learning process. So that the, the key um, mind shift is to understand that technology is not the foe, it's the friend, to get used to it, to, to um, incorporate it into your program, um, and then work to, uh, you know, um, to adapt and, and, and to benefit from it. Um, and that will allow you, for example, in underserved areas to bring in professors from all over the world um, who enjoy teaching and, and uh, allow you also to utilize local resources that may not have the the advanced expertise to give the lecture, but can certainly stimulate discussions and interactive um, uh, retrieval-based sessions, which we know from learning science is what, as they say, makes makes it stick. Um, the, the title of a wonderful book um, from cognitive scientists. Well, Professor, I want to be honest and I want to confess that I really enjoyed talking to you. That was really interesting hearing your experiences that you've had. Uh, actually, when you were talking, a lot of ideas uh, came up to my mind to ask you, but I, I controlled myself to not to interrupt your speech. But I just want to ask one more question before ending this podcast, which is you are a cardiac surgeon. And, and as a, uh, when I was in med school, I was thinking about uh, being busy when I 
was seeing a surgeon or especially a cardiac surgeon. So how did that happen? You were a cardiac surgeon, but you've changed your career and your path towards medical education and promoting medical education in underserved area. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that experience. Right. Well, I think cardiac surgeons perhaps tend uh, you know, to, to relish challenges. And when I was in medical school, it was really at the dawn of the heart transplant era. I'd had a background in immunology um, and uh, was interested. And um, I was captivated by this challenge of heart and heart-lung transplants. And um, uh, Hopkins had one of the leading specialists uh, as head of our division at the time. And this was really the, the most exciting thing to me at the time and the most challenging um, in heart surgery, went on to, to develop uh, um, some uh, and, and work on early uh, applications of mitral valve repairs and really very, what I considered very innovative. But then heart surgery, though it still is evolving, became um, more, um, I wouldn't say less challenging, but, but um, more established. And so when I had the opportunity to see this new opportunity, uh, this new perspective on, on how education could change. And I have to say, I was not, uh, you know, I, I had to work very hard um, when I was in school. I was, I was envious of some of my classmates who seemed to learn much faster and more easily. And, and I wish I'd had tools help me through the process. I always felt I had to work harder than many of my colleagues um, to, to progress. And so I was captivated by this notion and how underutilized uh, some of these, these strategies were and how underutilized technology was. So it was really a combination of my innate drive to, to take on challenging but potentially fruitful areas um, and, and a, a natural segue um, to, to evolve from one sort of career orientation, but in many ways very similar, um, and, and I've enjoyed it uh, tremendously. Well, that was fantastic. I, I cannot express how excited I am to release this episode, and I hope every of our audience can enjoy uh, this conversation. And Professor Hofner, thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure and my honor to have you on our show. And I hope that we can have you on another episode of our show. Thank you very much. Well, I'd, be, I'd be very pleased. It's my pleasure. And, and I congratulate you for helping disseminate these new ideas in education. And, and, and I invite all our any, any listeners to this podcast to tune in to our ongoing webinar series. It's hosted by Lecturio and, and to stay in touch. I think we need to work as a community of medical educators. Um, it, and, and I really see us as a global community to help improve how we teach and learn. So thank you very much for your initiative. It's been a real pleasure.